I was gone this last week, and um, in fact, it was like a speakathon for me. I had to speak eight different times out in California. And one of the things that I did was a conference called Preach the Word, and it was a pastor's leaders conference at the Disneyland Hotel. And I spoke, Greg Laurie spoke, John MacArthur, Tony Evans, etc. And um, the, the theme of it was not ashamed of the gospel. And um, one couple that came and listened stayed with relatives in the Orange County area, and they were so fired up about sharing the gospel that uh, the relatives they stayed with behind the um, uh, house where their relatives live is an apartment they rented out to the girl who dresses up like Mickey Mouse for Disneyland. She's the Mickey Mouse character that dances around and signs the autographs, and so they shared with her, and she accepted the Lord. So now we can safely say that Mickey Mouse is a believer. <laughs> a couple nights after that, we actually went into Disneyland and we shared the gospel. And uh, they gave us different stages. I was on the Fantasyland stage <laughs> with a group called Audio Adrenaline. And uh, but tell you what, they capture people's attention. And then, uh, of course, uh, I was able to share the gospel. It was an exciting time. Uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25 this morning. Well, for years, Disney has warmed the hearts of kids and adults with their story of a beautiful girl named Nell who meets a beast, once a prince, but because of his arrogance, he was turned into a beast. And that's sort of an insight and a picture of what's going on in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. We have a beauty named Abigail married to a beast of a man named Nabal who tames also in this chapter the beast called David. We have been doing a series. The series has been called Movers and Shakers. And my, my main thrust is that we want to raise up or I should say, see God raise up people of influence in their culture, influencing your culture with righteousness. And 1 Samuel speaks about principally three characters that did that. The prophet Samuel, the first king of Israel, Saul, who influenced for evil his culture, and then finally David. Principally, that's the theme of this book. But it's not just a story of three guys. There's some very influential women as well. In fact, we began the whole series with Hannah, a woman who made a difference in her culture by nurturing and raising up a prophet named Samuel. And now we get to Abigail, also a woman of influence. I think I began the series by making the statement that when God wants to do a, a great work, he begins with a man. But when God wants to do an exceptionally great work, he begins with a woman. And God was going to do an exceptionally great work through this woman to keep the next king of Israel from doing something very, very foolish. It's the story of a good woman married to a bad man. She encounters a bad situation and she makes the best out of it. It's also a story that tells us uh, something even more fundamental than that. And that is there's nobody perfect in the Bible except the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. But even the heroes of the Bible are shown in all of their flaws. David is seen here with one of his bad sides of his personality. He's a very angry person in this chapter. 
There's no such thing as a perfect king. There's no such thing as a perfect prophet. There's no such thing as a perfect disciple or a perfect apostle or, for that matter, a perfect church in the Bible. Abigail, however, comes real close to being near perfect. She's an amazing gal. Here's a riddle. Let me run by you. See if you can guess. There was a perfect man who met a perfect woman. Of course, this is a fable. After a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding. And their life together was, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving along a winding road when they noticed someone at the roadside in distress. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. There stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on Christmas Eve, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their vehicle. Soon they were driving along, delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated and the perfect couple and Santa Claus had an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Who was the survivor? Somebody said Santa Claus. Here's the answer. The perfect woman. She's the only one that really existed in the first place. (laughs) Everyone knows there is no Santa Claus and there's no such thing as a perfect man. Now, I'm not done yet. You may not want to clap. The male's response would be, So, if there is no perfect man and there is no Santa Claus, the perfect woman must have been driving. That explains why there was a car accident. It can work both ways, can it? Chapter 25 has a lot of verses in it. We don't have time to go through all of them, so we want to pick out certain ones to highlight the story of Abigail married to Nabal and her meeting with David. And so the story has three strokes of the brush to paint the story. First of all, a woman married to the wrong man, and then a woman who made the right move, and then finally a woman who mended a royal mess. That sort of tells the whole story in a nutshell. Let's, let's look at the first part of that. A woman married to the wrong man. Look at verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal. The name of his wife Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. You know, the Bible is a perfect mirror of real life. It gives life situations that are so like our own or like others. And even in the case of marriage, we find that people in the Bible didn't always have perfect marriages. Now, sometimes in the Scripture and out of the Scripture, sometimes we encounter a man who it seems married the wrong gal. Job, I think, is an example of that. It says he was a godly man who feared God and he was uh, 
the most righteous in all the earth, but at his lowest moment in life, when he's diseased, when he loses his children, at the lowest point of his life, the best his wife can come up with and advice to him is curse God and die. That's what she says to him. What should I do, honey? Curse God and die. That doesn't help. And then outside of the Bible, John Wesley is an example of somebody who was married, but his marriage was formal. It was cold. There never seemed to be real love and satisfaction for years and for years. Even outside of Christianity, Socrates, it is said, married a contentious woman who nagged him all of his life. In fact, he went on record and said, By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) Of course, he was a philosopher. But more typical is the woman who marries the wrong man. And such is the case with Abigail. She married a guy that was totally opposite. She was beautiful. She was smart. He was harsh, belligerent. They were opposites. Keep in mind that in ancient times, marriages were arranged. Moms and dads made the arrangements while the kids were very, very small. And so problems can develop. You say, I'd never want anything like that. Well, as I look around the landscape at the divorce rate, we're not doing much better. But nonetheless, the marriages were arranged, and no doubt Abigail's parents saw this guy's parents' wealth. And it was a case of beauty being sold for gold. They would get a big portion of that dowry that would be coming their way. His profile and her profile are opposites. Nabal means fool, literally. Fool. Now, I really honestly don't know how he got this name. I kind of doubt his dad or mom would right off the bat name their child fool as soon as he was born. It could be that he acquired the name, but nonetheless, it does fit. He was a very foolish individual. Now, when we hear the term fool, we think perhaps of of a dimwit, a, a moron, somebody whose lights are on, but nobody's home, you know. Like, like the guy who walked up to his friends, and as they met, they noticed that this guy had ears that were red, just bright red, and they said, what happened to your ears? And he said, oh. I was ironing my shirt, and the phone rang, and instead of picking up the phone, I picked up the iron. And they said, well, that explains one ear. What happened to the other one? He said, well, can you believe it? The same guy called back. He's a few orders short. But a fool in the Scripture speaks mainly of somebody who's morally deficient. The fool, David said, has said in his heart, there is no God. Somebody who's morally deficient. Not only that, but we notice he he was rich. Now that's a volatile combination. A rich fool. But that was Nabal. The word, by the way, means heavy, literally. He was rich. He was heavy. He was loaded, in other words. This guy had a lot of bucks. 3,000 sheep. He had 1,000 goats. Then it says also he was harsh and evil in his doings. That means he was stubborn, literally. He was dishonest. In other words, this guy was a world-class jerk. 
and his name fit perfectly. His wife is introduced in the same couple of verses, Abigail. You know what her name means? It means, my father is joy. You think her dad gave her that name? My father is joy. In verse 3, she is noted as a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Beauty and brains in one great package. That's Abigail. Yet she is married to a harsh, belligerent fool. You know, my heart goes out to so many women who are brave and courageous, who for whatever reason are married to a fool of a husband, a man who doesn't appreciate her. And yet in silence, by the grace of God, she tries to deal with it and put up with it and stays with the marriage. I've even heard some men put down their wives publicly, say things bad about their wives. I remember one person said, oh, my wife, you did okay, but you know she's just not too smart. And I thought, well, that's, that's quite an admission that you would make in light of the fact she said yes to your proposal. Be careful how you would talk about her choices. In fact, I've told you about the legend, and it is just a legend, a conversation that Adam and God had together. As soon as Eve was brought into the picture and Adam saw she was beautiful and he was excited and he talked to God and said, God, this is awesome. Why did you make her so soft and so beautiful? And God said, so that you'd love her. And then he says, God, come here. And in silence he says, well, then why did you make her so dumb? And God said, so that she would love you. (laughs) Now, before we move quickly on, just a note. A note to those of you who are contemplating marriage. Or you think, you know, one day I really want to find the right person. Well, that's the key, isn't it? Find the right person. Don't make a foolish mistake. Make sure that person loves God, is well grounded in the Word of God, and already demonstrates a fervent devotion to the things of the Spirit. Till death do us part be a long time. And it can seem like a lot longer if you're married to the wrong person. Next, the woman made the right move. Let me paint the situation because we don't have time to read all the verses. David and his men have been out in the wilderness. While they were there, they watched Nabal's sheep and protected the shepherds. Well, it happens to be sheep-shearing season in Carmel. Nabal, who owns all these sheep, is shearing, getting all the wool off. And it was a time of a great feast where all of the friends would get together and they would be given food and they would be given wool. It was customary that anyone who protected the flocks, as did David and his men, were duly compensated And so David sends ten young men, and they say, Peace, you know, shalom, shalom, shalom. And they go through all the greetings, expecting to receive their just compensation for watching Nabal's sheep in the wilderness. Well, it doesn't work out that way. Look at verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. Now listen to his... His emphasis. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men I do not know where they're from? Benjamin Franklin once said, He that falls in love with himself will have no rivals. He loved himself. 
This guy was a self-centered fool. Nobody else loved him. In fact, in verse 17, his own servants say that he's a scoundrel and he's unable to be approached. Verse 13 tells us where the problem comes in. David said to his men when they returned, Every man gird on his sword. You don't put your sword on to negotiate usually. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David. 200 stayed with supplies. Scoot down to verse 22. This is what he says when he's on his way. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David sends his men for food. They come back empty. David goes ballistic. He goes off the charts. I didn't get my meal. Okay, that's it. Give me my sword. We're going to kill everybody in Nabal's camp. This is called overkill, right? It's like sending an ICBM with a 100 megaton warhead to kill rats in a New York subway. It's, it's way overboard, which surprises us at first. It surprises us because we think, wait a minute, this isn't the David I know. The David I remember last reading is the David who stood next to King Saul who was trying to kill him and felt guilty that he cut a little piece of his robe off. Remember the story? I can't believe I cut his robe, man. This is bad. And his men said, cut his robe, kill him. I can't. I can't touch God's anointed. He was guilty and he wouldn't kill his enemy. Now he goes, I didn't get my breakfast. Let's kill everybody in the camp. It's interesting. It's interesting that the Bible discloses all of the flaws, even of its heroes. Didn't paint any halos around David. So we have a beauty between two beasts. One, Nabal, he's hard-headed. The other, David, he's hot-headed. And they're looking like they're about to meet. Now her beauty comes into view. She comes up with a plan. Um, In verse 17, let's just look at that. The servants of Nabal have come now to Abigail. They tell him the whole story. David's on the warpath. We're all dead meat. Verse 17 Now, therefore, that's a paraphrase, by the way. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all of his household. For he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. If you were Abigail, and she heard those words, the men come back and they say, Consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master. What thoughts would have gone through her mind? Hey, someone's out to kill your husband. Oh, really? (laughs) Consider what you will do. Oh, I'm considering. You know, it's like maybe a voice went off in her head and said, this is your chance. You go, girl. You get out of town and you just let this happen. She could have been tempted to do that. Maybe she was. But if she was, it was a very short moment. She doesn't give in to that temptation. In fact, she resisted it very creatively and comes up with a plan now. 
The plan is a quick plan. Verse 18. Abigail made haste. That means she hurried up. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, already prepared to eat, five saves of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys, and said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. And so she rode with the caravan out to meet David. What a picture, isn't it? Here's a caravan of retaliation in David and a caravan of reconciliation with Abigail. And she brings all this food. How do you handle an angry man? You feed him a lot. She brought a lot to feed him. And it'll melt his heart along with her words. Now it says that she didn't tell her husband. That was wise in this case. If she would have stopped to confer with hubby, it would have been suicide. He was such a scoundrel, verse 17 says, he was unapproachable. Nobody could talk to him. So she says, I don't have time for this. I've got to stop this right now. And she bypassed him to save his life. And she went and confronted David. It's sad that some of the best wisdom comes from our mates. And so often we're willing to disregard that. I think that Nabal's best asset in life was his wife. She could have given him so much wisdom so many times, but he was unapproachable. Men, have you become like that perhaps? Have you become a little hardened and calloused in your own life, so much so that your wife's afraid to discuss certain matters with you? Such was the case here. Such was the case even in Martin Luther's day. Listen to his description of of husbands. He said, The men speaking of his own day, are almost lions in their own homes, hard toward their wives and their servants. Of course, the Christian should love his wife. He's supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. That's wisdom. He went on to say that his, his wife, by the way, his wife's name was Katie. Katie Luther. Martin and Katie Luther. And he said, in domestic affairs, I defer to Katie, otherwise I'm led by the Holy Spirit. That's wisdom as well. Kept peace in the home and deferred to his wife. Not the case here. She approaches David. The caravans meet. Look in verse 24. So she fell at his feet and she said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then... Let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. This is diplomacy. This is tact. This is poise. She falls down in humility before him. Six times she refers to herself as your maidservant. Seven times in four verses she calls David my Lord. 
very tactful, very wise, very creative, because she is about to point the finger at David and tell him not to get engaged in the sin he's about to commit. She's going to warn him sternly about the consequences. But first, she disarms him. And you'd say, yeah, well, I have a problem with her whole approach here. She badmouths her husband. Says, you know, he's a scoundrel and he's foolish. Um, I just think it was common knowledge. I don't think she was telling David anything he didn't know. Even the servants, everybody knew it. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 25, words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in settings of silver. Just the right words to disarm this hostile individual. Mark Twain once said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. One is powerful, one is not. One will work, one will not. These words were powerful. Then, verse 29, she makes a very interesting prediction. She had to be in tune with the Lord for this. She says, Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. Who would that be? King Saul. But the life of my Lord, that's David, shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. She was talking David's language. He was a shepherd and knew how to use a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord then remember your maidservant. She says to him, I know that I am standing here before the next king of Israel. That's you, David. And even though you have an enemy, you're going to live. You're going to make it. But be careful. If you do this act, you will live to regret it. This will be a blot on your record forever. And listen, David did a lot of things he regretted. But this would be one he wouldn't because she kept him from it. Once again, a proverb comes to my mind. Proverbs eighteen twenty one: Death and life are in the power of the tongue. She could have come and said, Listen here, you young whippersnapper, you... No, didn't do that. Could have been the wrong move. She said, Your maidservant, my Lord, I'm sorry. Let it be on me. It's my fault. I'll take the brunt of whatever you want to give. But don't do this, David. It's going to be a blot in your record. Did you know that a fifth of your life is spent talking? That's the average. Now, some a lot more, some a lot less. A fifth of our lives are spent talking. That means every day you produce enough words to fill a 50-page book. How many of those words do you think are really important, vital, life-changing? These words that she spoke were life-changing. And that brings us to our third and final point. She was a woman who mended a royal mess. And I don't use those words lightly. He would be the next king over Israel. He would be royalty one day. And she stopped him from doing this act 
that would be a blot on his record. And by doing it, she achieved three things. She kept David from regret. She kept her servants from harm. And she kept her husband alive. She kept her husband alive. Look at verse 36. Now look at verse 31. Now look at verse 32. Let's start there. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Listen to him. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and avenging myself with my own hand. Isn't David teachable? He could have been so prideful. You know you're talking to woman. But he was open, he was teachable, and in front of all his men he said, You know what? You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Now look at verse 36. Want to see a twist? Abigail went to Nabal. There he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, his wife told him these things. His heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Back at the ranch, true to form, there's Nabal acting like a king. He's drunk with all of his buddies having a big old party, you know, watching, what, Monday night chariot races or something. She comes home, says, this guy's loaded. I'm not going to talk to him now. This would be a waste of time. She probably spent a very isolated, lonely evening as she went to bed that night. Gets up the next morning. He's sober, maybe a splitting headache. Goes, oh. And then she fills him in on everything. Nabal, honey, you are that close from death. David and 400 of his men, 401 guys were after you with their swords. I went out there and stopped the whole mess. When he found out how close he had come to death, it's, it's like he panicked. We, we think he had a stroke. He just stopped dead in his tracks, and ten days later, he died. What I find noteworthy about Abigail's character is her approach to her husband. She doesn't come in while he's drunk, nag him. She doesn't say, you are such a fool. You're always drunk. You're always wasting everything. She doesn't say anything. She goes to bed. She gets up. He's sober. She tells him what happened truthfully, forthrightly, honestly. You almost died. We're saved. And then he dies. My point is this. Gentleness and righteousness go a lot further than the hard, swift, or nagging approach that she could have brought. She didn't do that. She let God handle the rest. She acted righteously. Aesop, in one of his fables, 
showed the sun and the wind arguing about who was the strongest. Finally, the son said, tell you what, let's have a contest. See that fellow down there on the road? Let's see who can get him to take off his coat first. He will be the strongest. Wind said, fair deal. Son said, you go first. Sun hid behind the clouds. The wind created a gale force as if to take the man's coat off. Of course, all the man did is put his garment closer to his person. And finally, the wind gave up. And all the sun did is get behind the cloud and gently shine its warmth. The man was hot and he took his coat off. It was not the force. It was the gentle force of the sun that did it. Well, one beast is dead. So she marries the second beast, now tamed David. That concludes the story. And I want to just sort of wrap it up by giving you three quick summary points. Three marks of Abigail's beauty. What made her so beautiful? She was beautiful outwardly, but she had a beauty inwardly. You might say these are three beauty marks. Mark number one, she was unsoured by adversity. It's amazing. She had one of the worst trials any woman could ever have, married to a foolish husband like this guy, a scoundrel. And yet, she seemed to have such poise and such grace, and she was so kind. She stayed in the relationship. In fact, it could have been that relationship itself, that agony itself, that created such a sweet disposition within her. Like some trees, when you hit them with an axe, they exude a a sweet sap. Or like the oyster, when intruded by sand, creates a beautiful pearl, a gem. Not all pain is destructive, folks. If you say, I want a life pain-free, you'll be a very shallow individual. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the hardest-hearted and most unlovely Christians in all the world are those who have never had much trouble. And those who are the most sympathizing, the most loving, and the most Christ-like are those who have had the most afflictions. The worst thing that can happen to any of us is to have our path made too smooth. She was unsoured by adversity. Second, she was a peacemaker, wasn't she? She acted very quickly in this situation. She didn't say, I'm out of here. I want to watch the fireworks. She wanted to make peace, to bring reconciliation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Third, she was a spiritual counselor. Did you notice her references to the Lord God when she talked to David? She reminded David that God had a plan for his life and that he ought to trust the Lord his God. In fact, she said in verse 28, the Lord will make for my Lord an enduring house. And one of the best things we can do for our brothers and sisters who are discouraged or they feel like they have been a failure is to say, God's not done with you yet. God has a plan of change for your life. He's going to use you. Trust Him. Hang in there. She did that. Abigail, beautiful woman, outwardly, but also inwardly. You might say a rose between two thorns, Nabal and David. Did you know that in the United States, we spend $12,785 on beauty products every minute? That translates to $1,581,300 an hour. We are at a beauty business 
price of $17 billion per year. Well, great, you know, whatever works. But uh, outward beauty without inward beauty is superficial. Can I remind you of what Solomon said? Charm is deceitful. Beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That goes for men too. Final note as we close. Abigail warned David of doing something he might regret later on. David, don't do this. You'll live to regret it. You don't want to live your life that way. Blessed are you, he said in verse 33, you've kept me from coming to bloodshed. You know the best way to live your life? The best way to live your life is to make choices right now, do things right now that you won't regret later on. You know how many people I meet and counsel weekly that are living in a cycle of regret? Oh, I wish I shouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. So make the right choices so that you don't regret later on. Let me give you an example. You will never regret living 100% for Jesus Christ in your youth or in your mid-age. When you get old, you never say, I prayed way too much, man. I feel so bad. I read the Bible so much. I was godly. I witnessed. You'll never regret those things. You'll never regret loving your wife, loving your husband, forgiving relationships, humbling yourself right now. You'll never regret that. If you don't, you'll live to regret it. You'll never regret showing kindness to the poor, to the oppressed. You'll never regret repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus Christ. You'll never, ever regret that. But you will live to regret it if you don't. So the key then is to live our lives in such a way now. Make the right choices now that you think long, way long term. And Father, we pray that the choices we make now would live to glorify You. We were made for that reason. We were made to glorify and to praise You. To the extent that we do that, we are fulfilled and satisfied To the extent that we don't, we are more like Nabal, living to please ourselves. What a foolish way to live. Help us, Lord, to make the right choices. In Jesus' name, amen.